Good morning. If you would, open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where we're going to be in our lesson this morning as we take a look at the idea and the topic of joy in the Bible. Uh, The song we just sang, the joy of the Lord will be my strength, is a key phrase that's used here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And I think that the idea of that phrase is something that maybe, I think, I think the more time that we spend thinking about it and contemplating it and trying to live into it, uh, the more it'll help us in our walk with God and the more it'll help us through this, uh, through this life that we live. We've been talking uh, for the last several weeks about viewing things with what we've called Christ vision, um, the way that we look at the world differently because of Christ. And I think there are a whole bunch of things that hopefully we see differently than we otherwise would because Christ is in our lives. But one of those things perhaps is the topic of joy. I think as Christ followers, even in the midst of turmoil and hardship, we have more reason for joy than anyone else in the world. I think we have more reason for joy than anyone else because we have a hope in something that transcends the heartaches and the difficulties of this life. We have hope in something that is eternal. Now, as I use the word joy throughout this lesson, I recently read, uh, I'm I'm on Facebook and there's a group that I'm a part of that has a bunch of different preachers and there's professors on it and there's different people and sometimes they discuss topics and they recently discussed the topic of joy. And one of the things that I saw that I think is helpful a lot of times, uh, if I'm just talking about joy and I'm thinking of what different synonyms would be, I might use a word like happiness or something like that. Um, but I'm going to use those as different terms in this lesson. Uh, happiness, I would use more for the emotional response to various circumstances in life. Um, it makes sense for you to be happier at some times than other times. And I think sometimes we can fall into a trap. And I think as, as a preacher and as, as, uh, as, you know, a church family, we can sometimes so emphasize the need or the, the responsibility to be happy that people don't have place for grief and for lament. Or they feel guilty if they're not happy about something. Or they feel like they're sinning or something if, if they're going through, through a struggle of depression or something like that. And I never want to do that. I don't want to take your hardship and then add guilt to it because you're not happy enough through your hardship. I don't think that's really what the Bible is calling us to do anyway. Um, there are passages that say, like, rejoice in the Lord always. And I think that's an important uh, passage. And I think that's a... That's, a worthwhile disposition to have in life, the attitude of rejoicing and the attitude of being able to rejoice even through difficult circumstances. However, that doesn't mean that if you look at the life of Jesus, he's always just smiling ear to ear, deliriously happy. Like there are things in this life that are not happy. There are things in this life that very naturally you should not be happy about. Very naturally you should experience grief you should experience uh, the, the hardships of life sometimes. Sadness is just as much a part of being human as happiness. And it's not wrong to feel that. Uh, and, and so I know, especially as the holidays approach, there are going to be uh, 
for different people, the holidays are going to hit differently. Sometimes you'll be reminded of things that were once very joyful, but now they, they, bring, uh, they bring sorrow when you think about those things. Uh, there, there are going to be moments and experiences you, you have that bring sorrow to the forefront of your life and to the forefront of your mind. And that is part of being human. And it's important to remember God's not mad at you for that sorrow. God is with you in that sorrow. And I don't want to emphasize joy and say, all right, so never be sad, always be joyful, just slap a smile on it and go throughout your day and you'll be fine. I don't want to do that. But I do think it's also important to remember that joy can be something that we experience even in and through our sorrow. Happiness, I would say, is dependent in a lot of ways on life circumstances. Sometimes you're going to be happy, sometimes you're going to be sad, and you'll feel everything in between. But joy is hopefully something that can be a constant that we keep with us throughout. I would say even though Jesus wept tears and tears and, and, and sweat blood in Gethsemane, he was still a joyful person. Even though Jesus lamented the fate of Jerusalem, he was still a joyful person. Even though Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus, he was still a joyful person. He was still one who, uh, he, was, he was condemned as being a drunkard and a glutton because uh, he enjoyed the good things in life. And he, he spent time with people. He spent time with tax collectors and sinners. And, and he was someone who went to wedding feasts. And he was someone who enjoyed good meals. And like Jesus did joyful things, uh, even though he had a very serious ministry. And even though there were you know, aspects of hardship to his life and, and heartbreak in his life. All of that's going to happen. So all of that is to say, as we go through this lesson, when I talk about joy, I'm not talking about just the emotional experience of feeling happy. Uh, I, I fully understand that the loss of a loved one should make you feel different than going to Disneyland. You know, like those are very, one of those is going to bring sorrow and grief. One of those will bring happiness. But joy is a blessedness. Joy is a peace and a contentment in the presence of God that will often manifest itself in happiness. It'll manifest itself in peace. It'll manifest itself in strength in times of hardship. In fact, that's the song that we just sang. The joy of the Lord will be my strength. You often need strength in those moments where happiness is hard to find. You often need strength in those moments where grief is taking over. And the strength that you find can often be rooted in the joy of the Lord that is with you throughout. So what we're going to talk about uh, briefly this morning is Nehemiah chapter 8, where that's a reminder that's given to people who are wanting to grieve. They're wanting to mourn, and they're called to remember that the joy of the Lord will be their strength through this. Now, when you talk about joy in the Bible, uh, joy is a really important characteristic of the Christian. As a matter of fact, joy is one of those fruits of the Spirit, or is, is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, in, in Galatians chapter 5, when the fruit of the Spirit is, is enumerated, we have love, joy, and peace. Like, joy is put right up there. People should hopefully be able to see joy when they look at the church. And they should be able to see joy when they see Christians, when they see people who have something to be joyful about. Something, again, that transcends even the hardships of this life and gives us an eternal peace with a God who is constant. As long as there is God, there is reason for joy. And so joy is one of those things that, that this Holy Spirit is, produces in the life of the Christian. Joy is, in Romans 14, I love this verse, 
in Romans 14, you have this conflict that's taking place, seemingly among Jew and Gentile, about a couple of different topics. Things like certain foods you eat and drink, and certain days that you honor and celebrate and and remember. And there's always going to be different views on some of those things. Throughout the whole history of the church, there have been different views on each of those topics. And it started early, and Paul's dealing with it in Romans 14. But as he's writing that chapter, he wants those Christians, even if you have some different approaches to these things, don't then turn against the person who is your brother. If Christ has accepted this person, you accept this person. Don't destroy this person for the sake of your food and drink. Like, love this person, have unity with this person, even if you don't necessarily see this topic eye to eye. And he goes on to say, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful idea. Remembering that the kingdom gives us reason for joy even amongst and amid the turmoils and the hardships of this life. Well, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we find a people who are struggling to find joy. Uh, to set the context of what's happening in Isaiah 8, you have to back up in Israelite history a couple hundred years. But basically, Israel had had a kingdom. Israel had had a temple. Israel was a people who were doing well under the reign of King David and under the reign of King Solomon. And they had hope and they had a future and they had a good relationship with God. And they had kings who uh, were devoted to God. Shortly after the reign of King Solomon, however, there was a civil war and a division in the kingdom, and they ended up splitting. And the kingdom from that point forward, you have two separate kingdoms, was not always pleasant. Uh, You had the kingdom of Israel to the north, who by and large, every one of their kings was opposed to God. Uh, They were either idolatrous or they occasionally paid lip service to them. But for the most part, they were, uh, led the people away from God. They had, they set up these golden idols in Dan and in Bethel. And they said, these are going to be your gods now. Don't go down to Jerusalem anymore. They decided to do things their own way. And they didn't last too long as a nation. By 721, 721. 22 BC, they were wiped out by Assyria. Then you have that nation to the south, which is Judah, and that continues on a little bit longer. There are the occasional good king. For the most part, though, they're all pretty wicked also. And in fact, they had become so wicked that there were times that the temple itself, they just stopped using it, and it went into disrepair, and it grew old and and battered, and no one took care of it. So like, they had these renovation periods where they would decide, we're going to be faithful to God again. And Hezekiah and Josiah, some of these kings, they led these periods of restoration But they never lasted that long, and ultimately what ended up happening is that temple that was built under Solomon was destroyed. The city of David, Jerusalem, was laid waste by the Babylonians, and the people were taken to go be captives and exiles and live in Babylon for about 70 years. Eventually, Babylon falls, Persia takes over, the people are allowed to return home. They return home, and what do they find? They find a city in ruin. They find a temple that has been laid to waste. They see that their lives and the great story of their past, where they found their identity and their hope, has been completely shattered. And they are now a people who have to start things over again. And the worst thing about it is not only do they have to start everything over again, is when they look at their lives and they look at their history and they look at the law that God gave them, they can't help but realize that it's their own fault that they're in this mess. It's not like it was just that Babylon was more powerful and they were the bad ones. 
they had rejected and rebuffed and turned against their God over and over and over again throughout their history. In fact, even in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they're still struggling with this, and they're still doing things that are disobedient to God. And so Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book, and they are written to talk about the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the city and of the wall and the putting the law back in the, the hearts and minds of the people. And yet with every one of these goals and ambitions, there are uh, struggles and obstacles and hurdles to overcome. And even at the end of the book of Nehemiah, the book ends in frustration with Nehemiah angry at the people because they still aren't letting the law of God impact their hearts. And he ends up like he's yelling at them, he's punching them, he says he's pulling their beards. And like he ends with a leader who is frustrated at the people because he still can't get true heartfelt obedience from them. Well, so in all of that story, you have Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, I think, is a, is a valuable chapter because it shows at least a period where the people are wanting to commit themselves to the law again. And, and so they actually summon Ezra to read the law to them. Um, if you look at Ezra chapter 8 and verse 1, or sorry, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. So we often tend to think about this as Ezra calling all of the people together so he could read the law to them. But it's actually the reverse. The people gather and they call Ezra to read the law to them. They want to hear this law of the Lord. And so Ezra gets up and they end up, they build a podium for him so that he can stand up and he can read and all the people can listen. And everyone, male, female, and everyone old enough to understand is gathered together so they could hear the words of the law. And uh, then there's also helpers who are there who help explain some of the difficult parts. If you look at... Um, the end of verse 7, it gives this list of people, and then it mentions what they are doing is they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And then verse 8, it says they read from the book from the law of God translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And so you have explanation and translation. So the law is written in Hebrew. The people are probably speaking Aramaic at this time. And so it's helpful to have someone who can translate what this law means to the people. But think about, think about how distant they have grown from the law to, in order to understand it, they have to have experts there who are explaining it, people who are there who are translated, trying to give them the sense of it. This, the law hasn't been something that's been on their hearts and minds throughout their lives. It's not something they've grown up hearing recited in the synagogue all the time. It's something that they've grown distant from. And as they hear it, and they come to understand it, do you know what their response is to it? Verse 9, it says, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, they taught the people, and they said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. All right, so this is a feast of booths. They're supposed to be gathering together for this feast. And when people hear the law, they begin to weep and cry. Why? Well, I think it's because of what we talked about earlier. I think it's because they recognize how far they've grown from God, and they recognize that this state that they're in, with, uh, with they've, they've rebuilt the temple, but it's not to the glory that it once was, and they are trying to rebuild their city and their walls, but things are not what they should be, and they, they're in a wretched state, and they look at it, and they recognize that it's all their own fault, 
And they can't help but weep when they see that. Now, is there a place for weeping and for godly sorrow that brings about repentance? Yes, I think so. But if you only focus on the failures in your life, it's really hard to draw strength from that. If you only focus on the times you've sinned against God, and if you stay in that place, then you often, you can grow hopeless. And it's hard to be faithful to something that does not give you hope. It's hard if you think about Jesus and you only think about the ways that you failed him and you only think about the, the pain that he feels and, and how you were a participant in nailing you know, his hands there. If you only think about your failures in that, then you begin to grow, to have a mindset that says, I can't do it. Or a mindset that says, I'll always be a failure. Or a mindset that says, I'm a sinner now and I'll always be a sinner. And it's like, you won't see that, no, God has actually called you to something greater. And the death of Jesus, while he gave his life for you, it was to free you from those shackles and to free you from that guilt. I think sometimes we, we theologize guilt to the extent that we think that we should always walk around carrying the guilt of our sin. And, and while I understand, yes, you feel bad when you sin, like that's normal and that's okay, Don't forget to rejoice in the goodness that God has done for you. Don't forget to rejoice in the fact that you've been forgiven of that sin. And that Jesus gave his life because he genuinely, truly loves you. And that gives you something to rejoice in. Because no matter what you've done, and no matter what other hardship in your life, there are some constants that can give you peace and contentment. And one of those is the love of God. The love of God that overrides everything else. And rejoice in that. And bask in that. And give thanks in that. And so as the people are overcome by their grief at their sinfulness, Nehemiah and Ezra, they tell the people, no, now is not the time for weeping and mourning. Now is not the time for that. Instead, verse 10, this is what you do. If you feel like weeping and mourning, go, eat of the fat and drink of the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Look, have a meal. Have, have something. Celebrate with people. Go to church and gather with other people and take the Lord's Supper with other Go have a meal after services are over. Like, spend time enjoying what God has given you. Remember the good things that God has done for you. That God did bring you out of Babylonian captivity. That God did bring you out of Egypt. That God has forgiven you and called you to be his own child. And remember the good things that God has done because the joy that you get from that will make you stronger than the guilt you get from just thinking about your, your weaknesses and failures and sins. If you forget about joy, this Christian life, it might be a long life you have to live. You know, how many years are you going to be a Christian? It's hard to live a life that doesn't bring you any joy. If Christianity and if the gospel isn't bringing you joy, it's hard to stay committed to it. Like I said, it's hard to be a part of something that doesn't give you hope. And so remember reasons for joy. Keep them at the forefront of your mind. I I don't think joy will always just happen to you. If you treat joy like happiness, where it's just, if something good happens, I'll have it, and if something bad happens, I won't, then you'll often find it just fluctuating throughout your life in a struggle. Happiness will do that. Sadness will do that. But joy is the type of thing that I think if, if we make changes in our daily lives, perhaps we can find room for cultivating joy. If we make time in our lives to prioritize joyful things, if we make time in our lives to 
thank God for the salvation and the forgiveness that we have and the hope that we have and the eternal life that we have. If you go throughout your lives and those, those aren't things that you think about regularly, then the joy could probably start to dwindle. But if you remember what you have in Christ, if you remember what he's done for you, if you remember that you have a hope that transcends the struggles of this life, if you remember that there is a resurrection and that there is a heaven and that God loves you and you spend time every day thinking about those things and giving thanks for those things, then when those struggles hit, you won't forget about that. You won't only focus on the struggle and forget that there's actual good there as well. Remember some of the good things that happen here at this church. Remember the lives that are improved because of the fellowship of the saints. Remember the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because the joy of the Lord is your strength. You need strength throughout this life and joy can give it to you, especially when that joy comes from the Lord. One of the benefits about the joy that comes from the Lord rather than just a trivial joy that might be a happiness that comes and goes is that the Lord is ever-present and that the Lord is always good. And so if your joy comes from him, you have something sustainable and sturdy and rock solid that you could always have joy in. And so as you go through this text, they're reminded over and over again, not just to give in to, if if you look at verse 9, it says, Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites taught the people and they said, uh, the, the day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And then in verse 10, uh, it, it, he says to them, uh, go and eat of the fat and drink uh, of the sweet and send the portions to him who has nothing prepared, which is a way of thinking about the other people who don't have something prepared. Send things for them so that they can enjoy it too. And it says, for this day is holy to your Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then verse 11, so the Levites, so you have like three different statements all right in a row. The Levites, they calm the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And what do the people do in verse 12? All of the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. They were called to remember joy. And there's no way that you'll always feel happiness. There's no way that you can just eliminate sorrow from your life, nor should you. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions and experiences in this life. But what I want us to remember is to spend time thinking about, meditating it on, and practicing things that give us the joy of the Lord so that even in times of sorrow, we can have hope and assurance contentment and peace in what we have in God. And that, I think, is a closer approximation to the joy that we're called to have and the joy that can give us strength to overcome the hardships of this life because you can't eliminate them. You can have joy through them, though. And if there's anyone here this morning uh, or watching online who is is looking for something to put your hope in, is looking for a source of joy, we would love to help you. Uh, If there's anyone here who would like to have confidence in their salvation with God, having your sins washed away in baptism, naming Jesus as Lord of your life, please let that be known. If there's anyone here who would like to help in the prayers of the church, we want to know that we love you and we're here for you as well. If you have the need, you can talk to one of our elders in the back or come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.